0: book 2 chapters 7 8 and 9 of the blue lagoon this librivox recording is in the public domain read by adrian prezellis the blue lagoon by h de veer stackpole chapter 7 the schooner they carried the bananas up to the house and hung them from a branch of the artu then dick on his knees lit the fire to prepare the evening meal When it was over he went down to where the boat was moored, and returned with something in his hand. It was the javelin, with the iron point, or rather the two pieces of it. He had said nothing of what he had seen to the girl. Emmeline was seated on the grass. She had a long strip of the striped flannel stuff about her, worn like a scarf, and she had another piece in her hand which she was hemming. The bird was hopping about, pecking at a banana which they had thrown to him. A light breeze made the shadow of the R2 leaves dance upon the grass, and the serrated leaves of the breadfruit to patter one on the other with the sound of raindrops falling on glass. "'Where did you get it?' asked Emmeline, staring at the piece of the javelin which Dick had flung down almost beside her whilst he went into the house to fetch the knife. It was on the beach over there," he replied, taking his seat and examining the two fragments to see how he could splice them together. Emmeline looked at the pieces, putting them together in her mind. She did not like the look of the thing, so keen and savage, and stained dark a foot or more from the point. "'People have been there,' said Dick, putting the two pieces together and examining the fracture critically. Where?" Over there. This was lying on the sand, and the sand was all trod up. "'Dick,' said Emmeline, "'who were the people?' "'I don't know. I went up the hill and saw their boats going away, far away out. This was lying on the sand.' "'Dick,' said Emmeline, "'do you remember the noise yesterday?' "'Yes,' said Dick. I heard it in the night." When? In the night before the moon went away. That was them, said Dick. Dick? Yes. Who were they? I don't know, replied Dick. It was in the night, before the moon went away, and it went on and on, beating in the trees. I thought I was asleep, and then I knew I was awake. You were asleep, and I pushed you to listen but you couldn't wake. You were so asleep." Then the moon went away, and the noise went on. How did they make the noise? "'I don't know,' replied Dick. But it was them, and they left this on the sand, and the sand was all trod up, and I saw their boats from the hill, away out far." "'I thought I heard voices,' said Emmeline, but I was not sure. She fell into meditation watching her companion at work on the savage and sinister-looking thing in his hands he was splicing the two pieces together with a strip of the brown cloth-like stuff which is wrapped round the stalks of the cocoa-palm fronds the thing seemed to have been hurled there out of the blue by some unseen hand when he had spliced the pieces doing so with marvellous dexterity he took the thing short down near the point and began thrusting it into the soft earth to clean it. Then with a bit of flannel he polished it till it shone. He felt a keen delight in it. It was useless as a fish-spear because it had no barb, but it was a weapon. It was useless as a weapon because there was no foe on the island to use it against. Still it was a weapon. When he had finished scrubbing at it he rose, hitched his old trousers up, tightening the belt of cocoa-cloth which Emmeline had made for him, and went into the house and got his fish-spear, and stalked off to the boat, calling out to Emmeline to follow him. They crossed over to the reef where, as usual, he divested himself of clothing. It was strange that out here he would go about stark naked. Yet on the island he always wore some covering, but not so strange perhaps, after all. The sea is a great purifier both of the mind and the body. Before that great sweet spirit people do not think in the same way as they think far inland. What woman would appear in a town or on a country road or even bathing in a river as she appears bathing in the sea? Some instinct made Dick cover himself up on shore, and strip naked on the reef. In a minute he was down by the edge of the surf, javelin in one hand, fish-spear in the other. Emmeline by a little pool, the bottom of which was covered with branching coral, sat gazing down into its depths, lost in a reverie like that into which we fall when gazing at shapes in the fire. She had sat some time like this when a shout from Dick aroused her. She started to her feet and gazed to where he was pointing. An amazing thing was there. Just to the east, just rounding the curve of the reef, and scarcely a quarter of a mile from it, was coming a big topsail schooner. A beautiful sight she was, heeling to the breeze with every sail drawing, and the white foam like a feather at her forefoot. Dick, with the javelin in his hand, was standing gazing at her. He had dropped his fish-spear, and he stood as motionless as though he was carved out of stone. Emmeline ran to him and stood beside him. Neither of them spoke a word as the vessel drew closer. Everything was visible, so close was she now, from the reef-points on her great mainsail, luminous with the sunlight and white as the wing of a gull to the rail of the bulwarks. A crowd of men were hanging over the port bulwarks gazing at the island and the figures on the reef. Browned by the sun and sea-breeze, Emmeline's hair blowing on the wind, and the point of Dick's javelin flashing in the sun, they looked an ideal pair of savages seen from the schooner's deck. They're going away," said Emmeline, with a long-drawn breath of relief. Dick had made no reply. He stared at the schooner a moment longer in silence then, having made sure that she was standing away from the land. He began to run up and down, calling out wildly and beckoning to the vessel, as if to call her back. A moment later a sound came on the breeze—a faint hail. A flag was run to the peak and dipped as in derision, and the vessel continued on her course. As a matter of fact she had been at the point of putting about. Her captain had for the moment been undecided as to whether the forms on the reef were those of castaways or savages. But the javelin in Dick's hand had turned the scale of his opinion in favour of the theory of savages. End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 Love Steps In Two birds were sitting in the branches of the R2 tree. Coco had taken a mate. They had built a nest out of fibres pulled from the wrappings of the cocoa fronds, bits of stick and wire grass, anything in fact, even fibres from the palmetto thatch of the house below. The pilferings of birds, the building of nests, what charming incidents they are in the great episode of spring. The hawthorn tree never bloomed here, the climate was that of eternal summer, yet the spirit of May came just as she comes to the English countryside or the German forest. The doings in the Artu branches greatly interested Emmeline. The love-making and the nest-building were conducted quite in the usual manner, according to rules laid down by nature and carried out by men and birds. All sorts of quaint sounds came filtering down through the leaves from the branch where the sapphire-coloured lovers sat side by side, or the fork where the nest was beginning to form, croonings and cluckings, sounds like the flirting of a fan, the sounds of a squabble, followed by the sounds that told of the squabble made up. Sometimes after one of these squabbles a pale blue downy feather or two would come floating earthwards, touch the palmetto leaves on the house roof, and cling there, or be blown on to the grass. It was some days after the appearance of the schooner, and Dick was making ready to go into the woods and pick guavas. He had all the morning been engaged in making a basket to carry them in. In civilization he would, judging from his mechanical talent, perhaps have been an engineer building bridges and ships instead of palmetto leaf baskets and cane houses who knows if he would have been happier the heat of midday had passed when with the basket hanging over his shoulder on a piece of cane he started for the woods emmeline following the place they were going to always filled her with a vague dread not for a great deal would she have gone there alone Dick had discovered it in one of his rambles. They entered the wood and passed a little well—a well without apparent source or outlet, and a bottom of fine white sand. How the sand had formed there it would be impossible to say, but there it was, and around the margin grew ferns, redoubling themselves on the surface of the crystal-clear water. They left this to the right and struck into the heart of the wood. The heat of midday still lurked there, the way was clear, for there was a sort of path between the trees, as if in very ancient days there had been a road. Right across this path, half lost in shadow, half sunlit, the lianas hung their ropes. The Hutu tree, with its powdering of delicate blossoms, here stood, showing its lost loveliness to the sun. In the shade the scarlet hibiscus burned like a flame, Artu and breadfruit trees, and coconut bordered the way. As they proceeded the trees grew denser and the path more obscure. All at once, rounding a sharp turn, the path ended in a valley carpeted with fern. This was the place that always filled Emmeline with an undefined dread. One side of it was all built up in terraces with huge blocks of stone, blocks of stone so enormous that the wonder was how the ancient builders had put them in their places. Trees grew along the terraces, thrusting their roots between the interstices of the blocks. At their base, slightly tilted forward, as if with the sinkage of years, stood a great stone figure, roughly carved. Thirty feet high at least, mysterious-looking, the very spirit of the place. This figure and the terraces, the valley itself and the very trees that grew there, inspired Emmeline with deep curiosity and vague fear. People had been here once. Sometimes she could fancy she saw dark shadows moving amidst the trees and the whisper of the foliage seemed to her to hide voices at times, even as its shadow concealed forms. It was indeed an uncanny place to be alone in, even under the bright light of day. All across the Pacific for thousands of miles you find relics of the past, like these, scattered through the islands. These temple-places are nearly all the same—great terraces of stone massive idols, desolation overgrown with foliage. They hint at one religion, and a time when the sea-space of the Pacific was a continent which, sinking slowly through the ages, has left only its higher lands and hill-tops visible in the form of islands. Round these places the woods are thicker than elsewhere, hinting at the presence there once of sacred groves. The idols are immense, their faces are vague. The storms and the suns and the rains of the ages have cast over them a veil. The Sphinx is understandable, and a toy compared to these things, some of which have a stature of fifty feet, whose creation is veiled in absolute mystery, the gods of a people forever and forever lost. The Stone Man was the name Emmeline had given the idol of the valley, and sometimes at nights, when her thoughts would stray that way, she would picture him standing all alone in the moonlight or starlight, staring straight before him. He seemed forever listening. Unconsciously one fell to listening too, and then the valley seemed steeped in a supernatural silence he was not good to be alone with. Emmeline sat down amidst the fears just at his base. When one was close to him he lost the suggestion of life, and was simply a great stone which cast a shadow in the sun. Dick threw himself down also to rest. Then he rose up and went off amidst the guava-bushes, plucking the fruit and filling his basket. Since he had seen the schooner, the white men on her decks, the great masts and sails, and general appearance of freedom and speed and unknown adventure, he had been more than ordinarily glum and restless. Perhaps he connected her, in his mind, with the faraway vision of the Northumberland, and the idea of other places and lands, and the yearning for change that the idea of them inspired. He came back with his basket full of the ripe fruit, gave some to the girl, and sat down beside her. When she had finished eating them she took the cane that he used to carry the basket, and held it in her hands. She was bending it now in the form of a bow when it slipped, flew out, and struck her companion a sharp blow on the side of his face. Almost on the instant he turned and slapped her on the shoulder. She stared at him for a moment in troubled amazement, a sob came in her throat. Then some veil seemed lifted, some wizard's wand stretched out, some mysterious vial broken. As she looked at him like that, he suddenly and fiercely clasped her in his arms. He held her like this for a moment, dazed, stupefied, not knowing what to do with her, Then her lips told him, for they met his in an endless kiss. End of chapter eight. Chapter nine. The sleep of paradise. The moon rose up that evening and shot her silver arrows at the house under the artu tree. The house was empty. Then the moon came across the sea and across the reef. She lit the lagoon in its dark, dim heart. She lit the coral brains and sand-spaces and the fish, casting their shadows on the sand and the coral. The keeper of the lagoon rose to greet her, and the fin of him broke her reflection on the mirror-like surface into a thousand glittering ripples. She saw the white staring ribs of the form on the reef. Then, peeping over the trees, she looked down into the valley, where the great idol of stone had kept his solitary vigil for five thousand years, perhaps, or more. At his base, in his shadow, looking as if under his protection, lay two human beings, naked, clasped in each other's arms, and fast asleep. One could scarcely pity his vigil had it been marked sometimes through the years by such an incident as this. The thing had been conducted just as the birds conduct their love affairs—an affair absolutely natural, absolutely blameless, and without sin. It was a marriage according to nature, without feast or guests, consummated with accidental cynicism under the shadow of religion a thousand years dead. So happy in their ignorance were they, that they only knew that suddenly life had changed, that the skies and the sea were bluer, and that they had become in some magical way one a part of the other. The birds on the tree above were equally as happy in their ignorance, and in their love. End of chapter nine, end of part one